Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, wishing everyone a happy Labor Day and a relaxing end to the very hot, stormy, challenging summer. Ben Baldanza, from Maui to New York, we saw a summer of severe, sometimes deadly weather. We saw airlines clobbered by thunderstorms and air traffic control staffing shortages. And I, for one, hope that the worst is behind us, at least for some small period of time. I agree, Scott, and I too hope the fall is much smoother for airlines. But happy Labor Day to you, Scott, and to all of our listeners. It certainly was a tough summer, but I think the industry handled it pretty well. Lots of challenges are ahead, including pain for the big labor contracts agreed to this summer. More contracts with higher wages are coming for flight attendants, pilots at smaller airlines, and others too. And there's lots of work ahead in the fall, from a court date for the JetBlue Spirit merger to the FAA reauthorization bill in Congress to just figure out how airlines can schedule in this environment of severe storms and reduced FAA capacity. That's a pretty important to-do list right there, Ben. You mentioned FAA reauthorization, and I want to talk in depth with this episode about funding for air traffic control staffing and for modernization. You know, passengers pay for both through ticket taxes and fuel taxes, and there's little transparency or accountability. I think listeners will be outraged to hear how many billions of dollars of their money is sitting unspent while we are all being affected by air traffic control problems in the U.S. So let's talk in detail about what the problems are, where the money is, and what can be done about it, because this is the season to do something about it. That's right, and I look forward to that discussion, and I hope maybe we can have some impact to raise issues and get more people focused on a solution. Scott, I bet most flyers don't even realize they're double taxed when they buy a ticket because airlines are charging excise tax on the fuel. And then again, yep. the customers are charged on the ticket price, which is a tax on the tax the airlines paid for the fuel. So. Yeah. Too often, leaders in Washington seem to be focused on the wrong things when it comes to aviation. But I think we're at a crucial point where things need to change. 
less talk about junk fees and more talk about fixing the infrastructure. Yes, absolutely. So first, Ben, a couple of other news items. You probably can't comment on this one, but there was a bit of a kerfuffle this past week when lawyers apparently mistakenly released some internal JetBlue documents regarding the pricing for the tickets once the Spirit merger closes. The blog Law360 picked up on this. As listeners know, the government is suing to stop the merger on antitrust grounds, mostly because it believes JetBlue will remove some of the cheapest fares from travel markets if it swallows Spirit. And, spoiler alert, it will. The documents mentioned a seat reduction of about 24% on Spirit planes if they get JetBlue's seating. That would remove 24 seats on average from Spirit's fleet of 200 planes. Take out all those seats, and the documents suggest fares would have to rise 24%, or perhaps as much as 40%. To me, this is a big no-shit, Sherlock. Giving people more legroom and better service has a cost. Take out seats and passengers have to pay more to get the same revenue out of the flight. That was known from the start. You don't need legal documents to confirm that. But there's a lot more to this fare equation. Fares would have to rise anyway because JetBlue's fees are a lot lower and more consumer friendly than Spirit's. The same government that blasts add-on junk fees somehow forgets that Spirit passengers pay some very hefty fees on top of those cheap fares. On average in the second quarter, this is kind of the whole thing in a nutshell, I think, Ben. On average in the second quarter, each passenger paid Spirit $58 in fare and $70 in non-ticket revenue. You know this math better than anybody. So looking at just fares alone seems silly to me and really off target. Even if you just put JetBlue's fee schedule on Spirit passengers, you would have to raise fares to make up for lower fees. At the end of the day, this is really about whether JetBlue or Spirit can, on their own, provide competition to the big four airlines. I don't think they can. If combined into a bigger airline, I think there's a good chance those seats will provide more impactful competition and ultimately give consumers more access to airfares that offer good value. This isn't about the silly lowest fare in the market and all the fees on top of it that no one is counting. This is about having five big airlines slug it out domestically. More overall competition that really is competition the big guys can't ignore. I actually think the end of the American JetBlue Northeast Alliance provides a very good example of how the lack of scale hurts consumers when two weaker competitors can't combine into a stronger competitor. American is losing ground in New York to Delta and United. That's why it wanted to team up with JetBlue. After a judge said no, JetBlue is going to have to pull down flights at LaGuardia and give slots back to American. And American is likely going to pull down flights at JFK because it doesn't have the JetBlue feed at JFK to support a lot of its longer flights. New York will end up with less air service. Delta and United will get bigger at their respective hubs. 
So breaking up a partnership that was seen as anti-competitive will actually reduce competition, not increase it. I think the same can be said for JetBlue Spirit. Thanks for your comments on that, Scott. As listeners know, I can't say much here, but I will say that some of the fair comments that were out this week were based on assumptions on seating, not anything the two airlines have actually said. So I guess we'll see in October when the Justice Department lawsuit goes to trial. Another news item that I thought was interesting this past week, Scott, the New York Times did a very thorough investigation of close calls resulting from air traffic control lapses and errors. The Times disclosed incidents that hadn't been publicly reported before and some that had. The graphics with the story were terrific, really showing what happened in full motion. And the story got in depth on controller fatigue and short staffing that may have led to some of these near misses. We've talked about the shocking controller staffing shortages before, Scott, and some of the close calls, too. There wasn't a lot new in the Times report, but it was eye-opening. It pulled it all together very well, and I hope it gets people to realize that we have some serious safety issues with our weak and vulnerable air traffic control system beyond just forcing airlines to reduce schedules because of the shortage of controllers. I, I totally agree, Ben. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. Before the report ever ended up in the paper, I got asked immediately by friends and family what I thought about it once they saw it online. And as you said, nothing shockingly new, but it was shocking to many readers when you pull it all together. The Times does that kind of reporting very well. I thought it was very well done, and I know that's not an easy thing to do. So bravo to the Times. We'll talk more about how we think Washington needs to respond. Airlines Confidential relies on its sponsors who make this podcast possible. We want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Duop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Duop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. 
airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lowering costs, all while maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with their partner airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P dot com. All right. Let's now take a hard look at the air traffic control problem in this country because it greatly impacts airlines, which can't fly all the flights they want to into New York and incur millions and millions of dollars in added costs from unnecessary delays and cancellations. It's now clearly impacting our safety margins. Just read the New York Times report. And many of us fear that even though we are blessed with skilled pilots and aircraft loaded with amazing safety systems, that alone won't be able to prevent a major deadly accident when we have numerous human error close calls. And it's greatly impacting travelers through delays and frustrations and misconnections that lead to unexpected hotel stays and missed cruise sailings or family celebrations or whatever the purpose of the travel is. I'm reminded of the old definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. That's what the past 25 years has been, as long as I've been covering this. Every year we say the air traffic control system is rickety and we have a controller shortage and we really need to modernize, and it doesn't happen. In fact, we spend less today on the FAA than we did 15 years ago when adjusted for inflation. So why is that? Why are we in this hole and yet all we do is keep digging? How can we change that? Spoiler alert, I'm gonna end this reporting by saying that we need a Manhattan Project of smart people who are given the authority to figure out a world-changing problem under extreme deadline pressure. We can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. We need to fix the FAA and give it the tools, people, and equipment to operate efficiently and safely. Because the FAA can be very good. A lot of it is very, very good. It just doesn't have the tools. Nor does it have the leadership. We don't even have an FAA administrator. Haven't had one since Steve Dixon left March 31st. And we have a Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who has spent more time politically attacking airlines over fees rather than admitting his own agency is a huge part of the problem and needs a major fix. Mr. Secretary, you did a great job with the President's Infrastructure Initiative and the acceleration of electric vehicle adoption, but you need to roll up your sleeves on aviation. The greatest impact you could have would be to create an Aviation Manhattan Project and put us on a path to solution. We talked before about the air traffic control staffing problem after the Inspector General's report came out in July with some really shocking numbers. The FAA said last week that it has met its goal of hiring 1,500 new air traffic controllers. Remember, it takes several years to train and certify them to actually be responsible for airplanes alone. The FAA is asking for 1,800 hires next year. Remember, too, 
controllers see lots of retirements and burnout each year. And there are specific facility issues like New York Center, which is supposed to have 30 supervisors, but has only eight, according to the DOT's Inspector General's report. Attrition is really high there. The Inspector General found that it has only 54% of the overall staffing it's supposed to have. It's challenging airspace, and it is also, according to FAA officials I know, a workplace that seems to be inhospitable to new hires. It's very toxic. There are a bunch of controllers there who take home huge overtime amounts each year because the FAA can't seem to get it up to full staff. New York staffing has forced cuts from airline schedules. That's job one for our Manhattan project because the FAA alone doesn't seem capable of fixing New York. And what about money? Here's the really outrageous part. The money is there. When you buy a ticket, excise taxes, as Ben said, go into the Airport and Airways Trust Fund, which was created more than 50 years ago in 1970. When airlines load fuel onto planes, they pay jet fuel taxes that go into the trust fund, and every ticket has excise taxes in the taxes and fees built into your fare. All that tax money pays a very, very significant portion of the FAA's budget for operations and for modernization. Today, there is $13 billion sitting unspent in the trust fund. I've always been told that Congress liked having a plump trust fund balance because it offsets budget deficits and makes the balance sheet look better. The national debt appears lower because of trust fund holdings. Regardless, what's very clear is that we, travelers and airlines, aren't getting our money's worth. And when we talk about the need for major change, the money is there. The Congressional Budget Office says this year's FAA operations budget of $11.9 billion will be paid for with about $10 billion from the trust fund and $1.9 billion from the general fund, the regular budget. Travelers and cargo are paying 84% of the FAA's budget. Okay, that makes sense. I get it. That's good. Look a little closer and you see that excise taxes this year will put $11.4 billion into the trust fund. So $11.4 billion goes in and only $10 billion comes out. The trust fund gets bigger because we're not spending it all. If we're holding back for a rainy day, it's here. This is the rainy day. Remember, we've already been through a pandemic with no travel for a long time, and yet we still have $13 billion sitting unspent. In 2009, the trust fund had a cash balance of about $9 billion. Today, the cash balance is roughly 40% higher. Over the next 10 years, and this really got me, over the next 10 years, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the trust fund will grow to more than $44 billion because outlays aren't increasing as fast as excise tax revenue is increasing. So no one needs to raise taxes or cut budgets in order to increase FAA spending. The money is there and will continue to grow. Sadly, I think, the FAA asked for only a 4.1% budget increase this year. Congress seems inclined to approve that. 
The House approved the FAA reauthorization with only small cuts, and the Senate will take it up after Labor Day. The FAA's budget request said it holds safety as the FAA's highest priority. It notes the increase in controller hires to 1,800 next year from 1,500, and it plans to accelerate modernization. And yet the budget barely keeps up with inflation. It's not enough. We've put the money in. It's time to do more than incremental tweaks and twangs. This is what we do, and it's not working. We need bold leadership to change this paradigm. You know, over the past 15 years, the FAA's budget has increased just 25%. If you factor in inflation, it's 10% less than it was 15 years ago. It would be one thing, I suppose, if you said, hey, we need to spend less and we need lower taxes. Fine. I'd argue air traffic control is an essential service that needs to keep up with the growth in air travel, but that's not even the point because the money is sitting there. We don't need new taxes. We just need to spend the money we've already collected. So Ben, four takeaways. Here's my plan. (laughs) One, we need an FAA administrator, someone strong and bold and committed to serious change and dramatic improvement someone willing to fight the battles to shake the status quo. Two, we need a second Manhattan Project. If you're not familiar, go see the movie Oppenheimer. We need a second Manhattan Project for air traffic control. This is a really big, really difficult problem that won't be solved with incremental steps. And frankly, since New York is such a big blazing example of the problem, I love calling it the second Manhattan Project. Third, we need the money we have already paid in taxes. And four, we need to change the rhetoric. And you mentioned this before. Politicians, stop talking about junk fees and seat size and get serious about inefficient, inflexible, understaffed, antiquated air traffic control, which is the part of the system you run after all. This is vital for our economy and it's vital for our safety. Okay, thanks for letting me share some reporting this week, Ben, and thanks for letting me rant. And by the way, if you agree, listeners, let your congressional representatives know. Let Secretary Buttigieg know. This is, after all, our money that is not being well spent. And if you don't agree, let us know. We'd love to hear from listeners on this. Scott, that was terrific. Well said. I agree with all four points. But now I'm really going to date myself. (laughs) There used to be a show on TV called Green Acres. And every once in a while, when the main protagonist on the show, Oliver, would give a real rousing speech, you'd hear a little fife playing in the background. <laughs> and I heard that fife while you're talking, Scott. Yeah. Well, I, I hope the I hope it was hitting the right notes. <laughs> you sure were. No, that was terrific. Well, let's get to the mailbag for this week. Okay, Ben. In this week's mailbag, Peter from Connecticut has a new business idea for you to ponder. Peter says, hi, Ben and Scott. We often hear about airports losing regional service, 
But do you think it's an opportunity for small part 135 operators to start interline agreements with their bigger mainline partners? For example, let's say I live in Columbia, South Carolina, and want to go to Montauk, New York for a weekend. I could take American Eagle to LaGuardia and drive, or what if there was a PC-12, small, small turboprop plane, what if there was a PC-12 operator that flew LGA to Montauk and I connected in LaGuardia? You could call it American Eaglelet. I feel like the consumer wins here and gets closer to where they want to go. There's no way you could land an airliner at Montauk, so it would have to be a small turboprop. But given the choice of driving three hours from LaGuardia or a 25-minute flight, I'm sure many would choose the latter. What do you think? I love the phrasing, American Eaglet or Eaglet. Yeah. It's terrific. <laughs> you know, it's a good idea if the Part 135 operators could work out a reasonable interline where the bigger airline could sell tickets on them and fly flights like that. It's also an opportunity, and Peter won't like this as much, for companies like Landline to run a really comfortable bus from LaGuardia to Montauk. When you get to those shorter kind of flights, especially into places where big jets can't fly, Part 135 and bus operations both can play a role, I think. Yeah, it, I think, it, it, as you know, it, it, it gets really challenging, right? As a, as a little tiny operator, does that mean they have to be in Sabre or some, some large reservation system where uh, American can, can access the inventory in real time, um, working out the pricing and, and baggage connection and everything else? Um, it, it really does get challenging. Um, I wonder if it would be more of a independent shuttle service, um, uh, not American Eaglet, but just Eaglet, and uh, and and you could buy your ticket directly from from that. You could carry your bags over to the PC12, and uh, and get on and go um, uh, without having the you, you'd give up the convenience of of the interline agreement, but um, then again, it might be cheaper and. Uh, ultimately easier. All right. And Thomas from Dallas has a question that's more in my breadbasket. Thomas wants to know why passengers get so much matter at airlines and the government's role in the current state of the industry. Thomas says, I've been pondering the question of why travelers give airlines less grace when they mess up or are subject to uncontrollable circumstances versus services like the internet cable company, and why this has resulted in fury from the government and the prospect of new regulation of airlines regarding passenger compensation. When a passenger walks through an airport door, they give up more personal control of their situation than they do in almost any other aspect of their daily lives. When a person has their flight delayed or canceled, they literally may be trapped with few, if any, alternatives. If your internet goes out at your house and your repair person can't come right away, 
Generally, someone has options. Use their phone or turn it into a hotspot, go down to the cafe, etc., to access internet and get work done. When you're coming back from vacation and you're supposed to be back to work, the airline delaying your return by a day, or these days maybe more, can leave you in a real bind. Sometimes I think airline execs and employees forget just how truly trapped and stranded travelers are in this situation. Many rental car companies don't even do one-way rentals from airports during busy times of the year anymore. And those that do charge hefty premiums for them. That's to say they even have inventory to rent. When an airline tells a passenger, you're on your own until you get out in three days, that strikes panic in people. Sure, rental car companies, hotels, etc., can cause disruptions to travelers' plans as well, but when there is an issue there, it doesn't leave the person feeling abandoned or trapped like it does when you're in an airport terminal hundreds or thousands of miles from your destination with no good resolution. Thomas continues, that said, I think the government is actually shirking a lot of their responsibility in this. The last two secretaries of transportation haven't had any transportation experience, whether it be industry or regulatory government. I think our current secretary of transportation is a smart, capable guy, but he can't just keep berating airlines without acknowledging his own department's role in the current mess. The recent audit showing the FAA has no plan to deal with the controller shortage is just one example. I don't blame the current secretary for the lack of planning and leadership in the past, but at some point, someone has to take the bull by the horns and start the process of modernization, as well as looking at how we can attract more people. I know Scott Kirby can be abrasive, and his private jet flight was a very poor decision, but after United's meltdown, Scott did something that I haven't seen a lot of. He actually put forward a plan with some of the issues and started implementing them. We need more of that and less finger pointing. I'm a lawyer, Thomas says, with a degree in economics, so I understand the legal and financial reasons airlines have for compensating and not compensating passengers the way they do. More regulation regarding compensation sounds great, and work is definitely needed in this area, but everyone needs to understand that without improvement in the air traffic control system, increased regulation will likely just result in fewer, more expensive flights. That wouldn't be good for the traveler either. I always enjoy your insights and look forward to the show every week. Well, Thomas, thank you very much for your detailed observation and interesting comments. I think you answered your own question. Travelers are captive to airlines when things go bad. I think airlines have made this worse by imposing rules and penalties all to the airline's favor but it's a highly stressful endeavor to begin with and bad things do happen to people. You may be mad at your cable provider, but odds are the cable provider doesn't leave you stranded in a strange city with no hotel room for two to three days. And as you say, the finger pointing doesn't help either. In terms of politicians, the same rules apply. You nailed it, I think. Politicians beat up on airlines because it's popular. In politics, you need a villain. For some politicians, it's immigrants or liberals or big business or rich people. Airlines are kind of a bipartisan villain. Both sides bash them because it resonates with voters. What gets lost in the attack is that the same politicians fund and oversee the government-run system that contributes to a lot of the problems, but they never get held accountable. Maybe until now. What do you think, Ben? 
Well, I think Thomas nailed it. I think I heard a mini fife during his rant. (laughs) (laughs) But that is the right thing. And, you know, if you're stuck in an airport because your flight is canceled, you look on your phone or if you're one of the few people with a paper ticket, you look at that and you see the name American Airlines or JetBlue or Delta or Frontier or whatever. So that's the first place your anger goes. Mm-hmm. The challenge with air traffic control is that it's so important, but it's a B2B business, right? The end customer never deals directly with air traffic control. So they count on their airlines to manage that piece of the relationship because it's the airline that made the promise. So I get it why people beat on the airlines, but beating on them doesn't solve the problem. And I think in today's show, your four-point plan is the way to make things change for the better. And we need an administrator who can make that happen. Absolutely. Well, I hope uh, listeners get it uh, and, and have appreciated it. And I hope somebody is listening who can uh, make some change that will uh, make flying better for all of us. That's all for this week's episode of Airlines Confidential. Have a great week and a great Labor Day, everybody. We'll see you all next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.